When the Woman Screams is a horror podcast that explores the cultural messaging behind why women scream in horror films. Content may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello and welcome to When the Woman Screams, a podcast where we break down horror films one scream at a time. In today's episode, we're exploring female horror screams as a means of associating queerness with monstrosity. And we're asking ourselves how those screams reflect the struggles of LGBTQ plus Americans. I'm your host, Elizabeth Irwin, and on this podcast, we talk blood, guts, and spoilers, so listener discretion is advised. But, Your Majesty, you cannot die an old maid. I have no intention to, Chancellor. I shall die a bachelor. I'm a big girl. This isn't my first year away from home. Her name is Marie Allen. If I said no to Kitty, I'm sure not going to say yes to you. <laughs> She's a cute trick. I just want to be with you. I don't care, New York, dairy, whatever. It's You have to say that. Have to say anything. Take off that fucking hat. We want to give people the impression we allow a bunch of fucking fairies like you in this town. It rubs the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. When it comes to depictions of queer sexuality in American cinema, visibility has not always meant positive representation. Horror films especially tend to be a mixed bag with queer desire often used to convey depravity. In his book, Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality and the Horror Film, Harry M. Benchoff writes, quote, Both movie monsters and homosexuals have existed chiefly in shadowy closets, and when they do emerge from those prescribed places into the sunlit world, they cause panic and fear. Their closets uphold and reinforce culturally constructed binaries of gender and sexuality that structure Western thought. End quote. But here's the thing these characterizations didn't just suddenly appear in modern horror, a period generally thought to have started in 1960 with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. No, these associations have always been there. It's just that they were hidden in a process that has come to be known as coding. In the early 1930s, the United States was still recovering from the Wall Street crash of 1929 and its devastating economic impacts. Closing time. The close of an era. The great big spree, the jazz age, is over. All over. In the 1920s, the great American word was prosperity. Now the 30s have begun and there is a new word. Depression. Little man, what now? Well, you can always sell surplus apples five cents a piece on the street corner. And if you're bewildered, panicky at what's happening to you and your country, you aren't alone. One of America's biggest industrialists has openly admitted, I am afraid. Prosperity is just around the corner, say the hopeful headlines. But around the corners wind the lengthening bread lines, and a whole new class of citizens appears in American society the new poor. In response, films began to explore the seedy underbelly of an American culture turned on its head. 
known as pre-code films, these movies depicted everything from killers with a fondness for meat suits to maniacal scientists hell-bent on playing God to overt non-punitive sexuality, and were a showcase for cultural taboos that frequently left audiences clutching their pearls. Consider the 1933 film Babyface, a story about female sexual agency that really leans into its titillating subject matter when the main character, played by Barbara Stanwyck, rails against her father for selling her to men. Yeah, I'm a tramp, and who's to blame? My father, a swell start you gave me. Ever since I was 14, what's it been? Nothing but men, dirty, rotten men, and you're lower than any of them. I'll hate you as long as I live. As a reaction to these films, the Hayes Code was a voluntary standard of ethics created in 1930 by the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. The code, as it became known, was guided by the principle that no picture shall be produced which will lower the standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown in to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Although it was officially in effect from 1930 until 1968, the motion picture community did not immediately adopt the Hayes Code. Horror, in particular, initially pushed the boundaries of good taste by creating storylines extreme enough to interest a cash-strapped audience, and in doing so, caught the attention of moral watch groups, chief among them the National Legion of Decency, the LOD, an organization closely affiliated with the United States Roman Catholic Church. Our job, as I see it, is quite simple. Nobody expects us to impose upon the public motion pictures which are dull or lacking in vitality or vigor. No intelligent person will argue that we are to make pictures only for children. We must have stories with power and punch and backbone. At the same time, we must be on the lookout for scenes or action or dialogue which are likely to give offense. The responsible men in this industry want no such pictures and will not allow these to be shown. By threatening boycotts en masse if filmmakers didn't eliminate depictions of immorality, the LOD was the power structure needed to very actively enforce the Hayes Code. Led by Joseph Breen in 1934, the Production Code Administration mandated that the board must approve all films prior to release. The code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Respect for law, respect for every religion, respect for every race, and respect for every nation. It also amended the original Hayes Code to include stringent guidelines as to what constitute moral and immoral behavior. Chief among the list of immoral behavior banned in films was, quote, any inference of sex perversion, end quote, an umbrella phrase that the LOD used to erase any and all depictions of homosexuality on film. This new rigid enforcement resulted in filmmakers finding creative ways to express homosexuality while seemingly adhering to the code. As a means of projecting homosexual subtext, Coding became the way in which films could be read as both heterosexual and homosexual narratives. Just enough homosexual signifiers were included in films so that audiences open to a homosexual reading of a film were rewarded, while those who were looking for a heterosexual reading were also pacified. 
horror proved a genre especially adept at offering up coded narratives. So in today's episode, we're deep diving into three Hays Code era films, Dracula's Daughter, Cat People, and Suddenly Last Summer. And we're thinking through how those screams contribute to queer marginalization. But first, a quick note about today's episode. The time period we are discussing operated with some pretty narrow and defined binaries when it comes to sexuality. To reflect the conversations that were taking place in the 1930s through 1950s, I'll be using homosexuality as an umbrella term to define any sexuality not heterosexual, as that was the rhetoric being used in dominant culture conversations. We accept largely today that such an approach leads to an erasure of a number of sexualities. But as we will see in today's episode, such erasure in the early part of the 20th century was exactly the point. Monsters, with their obvious otherness and inherently transgressive natures, were a natural fit with coding practices, and they fuel the screams found in our first film. Dracula's Daughter, from 1936, traces the struggle of Hungarian Countess Maria Zaleska, who, upon learning of the death of her father, Count Dracula, believes the curse of her being a vampire will be lifted. When her hope is not fulfilled, she enlists the assistance of psychiatrist Dr. Jeffrey Garth, whom she believes has the power to cure her. When his help, too, proves ineffectual, Maria flees to Transylvania, intent on turning Garth into a vampire and her everlasting companion. At least that's the official description of the film. To many viewers, though, Dracula's Daughter is the story of a woman desperately trying to rid herself of the curse of lesbianism. In this scene, Sander, Maria's manservant, has forced the young and impoverished Lily into his mistress's lair, under the guise that Lily will model for Maria and will be rewarded with food. But as Lily undresses, she becomes more and more leery of Maria's intentions. Why are you looking at me that way? Won't I do? Yes, you'll do very well indeed. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. I will show it to you. I don't think I'll pose tonight. I, I think I'll go if you don't mind. Please don't come any closer. I scream here is a direct response to being confronted with Maria's monstrosity, but it's a monstrosity cloaked in seduction. The camera lingers on Maria as she gazes upon Lily's exposed body, and it's clear that the sight of the undressed woman is awakening Maria's appetites. As Lily's awareness of what is about to transpire draws closer, and Maria's hypnoticism begins to render her body immovable, Lily's scream is her only recourse. It's a vocal rejection of what is about to transpire, and that pronounced rejection is by design. It reminds us that Lily is an innocent who has absolutely no interest in what's about to happen. This casting of innocent versus monster plays very specifically upon 1930s sensibilities regarding sex. In the 1920s and the early part of the 1930s, sexual liberation, including queer sexuality, was a part of the cultural conversation. Nightclubs and cabarets, often dubbed pansy parlors, were popping up in cities across the country. But these open celebrations of sexuality were brought to a halt by the country's economic decline. 
with the Depression, also came an American religious revival in which overt depictions of homosexual desire were no longer welcome in the mainstream. So even the inference that Lily might return Maria's interest had to be avoided, which the hypnosis, coupled with her scream, accomplished. Our second scream can be read as a continuation of sorts. Having been rendered comatose from her encounter with Maria, doctors use their own form of hypnosis to awaken Lily so that they can find out what happened to her. You must remember. No. 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 Nothing to be afraid of. You must remember. The bookshop's closed. I don't want to go up those dark stairs. Let go of my arm. You're hurting me. Please. She's dead. It's important to note that Lily's scream here does not exist in a vacuum. Instead, it essentially serves as a climax to a queer narrative that the film has been methodically building in its dialogue. Because Maria has expressed her desire to live, quote-unquote, a normal life, to think normal things, and because she responds to Dr. Garth's concerns that she is concealing the truth about herself with an admission that the truth is simply too ghastly to admit, audiences of the era might begin to guess that the secret Maria is guarding more likely concerns sexual desire than it does vampirism. The introduction of additional medical professionals in this scene is intentional. A horror films of the era used medical doctors as a means of painting monsters as threatening. Here, their presence is designed not only to cure Lilith, but to return her to heterosexual normality. Lilia is literally the person who dies while screaming because the encounter with Maria is no longer repressed. And that knowledge is simply too horrible a burden to bear. Like Dracula's daughter, Cat People, released in 1942, focuses on a coded lesbian who resists but ultimately gives in to her primal urges. In the film, Arena, played by Simone Simon, struggles against the part of her true identity she fears will render her an outcast. A Serbian immigrant, Irina believes she is descended from a cursed tribe in which any woman who has her passions aroused will shapeshift into a killing panther. Unable to be intimate with Oliver, a New York architect she impulsively marries for fear it will activate the curse, Irina is sent to a psychiatrist in search of a cure. The audience is left guessing whether Irina's paranoia is the result of sexual repression or whether her fears may actually be well-founded. Our first scream comes not from Arena, but from Alice, played by Jane Randolph. Realizing that Alice is in love with Oliver and worried that Oliver might return those feelings, Arena sets off to follow Alice to the basement pool. Meanwhile, Alice begins to feel as though she is being watched. screams here are most certainly coming from a very real place of fear, they are also moving the threat posed by Arena from potential to actual. Up until this point, her concerns that she is cursed have been largely dismissed by both Oliver and Alice. But this scene demonstrates that Arena is, in fact, a shape-shifting monster, 
and that her curse renders her a very real threat to those around her. That this threat is directed toward Alice is intentional. As the quote-unquote normal woman in the love triangle, Alice's relationship with Oliver is one of expressed heteronormativity, and her scream here signals the threat to not only her own personal safety, but to traditional domestic relationships. Alice is a stark contrast to Harina, whose inability to engage in heterosexual sex marks her as an other. In Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, Robin Wood defines otherness as that which violates a repressive society. For Irina to be perceived as a monster, she must be positioned outside of acceptable societal boundaries. And the film accomplishes this by coding her lesbianism and doing so in a way designed to fuel audience terror and unease. Because in 1942, we were still six years out from the Kinsey Report estimating 10% of the American population to be gay, eight years out from the founding of the Mattachine Society, one of the United States' first gay rights group, and 13 years out from the founding of the Daughters of Belitis, the United States' first lesbian political organization. In film, there are simply no mainstream voices that can counter religious-based framing of homosexuality as perversion. Our next scream doesn't come from Irina, but from Dr. Judd, the psychiatrist who has taken on her case at the bequest of Oliver. Dr. Judd serves a very specific function, and that is to ensure that the audience reads Irina's otherness as a psychological defect. And while this may be a strange inclusion in a podcast devoted to horror screams of women, Irina does offer up a sound that I believe can be read as the animalistic equivalent of a scream. In this scene, Dr. Judd attempts to seduce Irina, partly because of his sexual interest in her, and partly to prove to her that her concerns are all in her head. And let's just say, things don't go especially well for Dr. Judd. You're late, aren't you? I kept my appointment. You see, I've never believed your story. I'm not afraid of you. I take you in my arms. scream heard here comes from Dr. Judd, and clearly stems from his awareness that he has severely misjudged the situation, and is about to be brutally killed. But there's also a subliminal message being imparted to the audience that Irina's otherness, that authentic part of herself society defines as unclean, is not controllable. The only way to eradicate the threat is to destroy the person, something that does come to pass with Irina's death at the film's conclusion. But in this moment, Irina has stopped resisting her self-described impure impulses and has embraced her authentic self. 
The growls we hear heard direct toward Dr. Judd are the animal equivalent of a scream and are meant to counter Dr. Judd's response and to underscore to the audience that ultimately medical intervention cannot tame a natural instinct. The intersection of homosexuality and medicine rears its head again in 1959's Suddenly Last Summer. Our previous films explored coded lesbianism, but this film codes male homosexuality and renders it monstrous. Unlike Tennessee Williams' other queer-coded film adaptations of the 1950s, A Streetcar Named Desire from 1951 and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof from 1958, Suddenly Last Summer leans into its queer content and grapples more openly with cultural taboos. In 1959, enforcement of the code was declining, but studio film portrayals of homosexuality in positive terms were still all but non-existent. The story revolves around Catherine, played by Elizabeth Taylor, who has been institutionalized after the death of her cousin Sebastian, who died under mysterious circumstances while with her on holiday. Sebastian's mother, Violet, played by Catherine Hepburn, wants a lobotomy performed on Catherine, but it remains to be seen what Violet's motivations are for demanding the procedure. We begin with a scene in which Catherine is told by her mother and her brother that they intend to give the doctors permission to move ahead with Catherine's lobotomy. They've agreed to do so at the behest of Violet, who is blocking the family's access to their inheritance from Sebastian until the paperwork is signed. Realizing that she is in imminent danger, Catherine escapes her private room and runs through the asylum, where she winds up on a ledge overlooking a room of male patients. When they notice her, the room erupts in pandemonium, with many of the patients grabbing at and molesting Catherine. screams in this scene are essentially laying the groundwork for the film's overall message that connects mental illness with violence. Catherine's screams are a direct response to the threat of literally being surrounded by mental instability, an instability that becomes tangible once the men begin grabbing and fondling her. In this moment, the film is carefully distinguishing between people who are presumed to have a mental illness, but who do not, like Catherine, and those who actually do like the male patients. This distinction is important because of how it ultimately plays into the framing of Sebastian as the film's monster. While the film's depictions of mental illness are gut-turning, they are in keeping with cultural attitudes of the era. This was not a time when ethics review boards examined research protocols for human rights violations and mentally ill patients were routinely subjected to so-called treatments that we would call barbaric today. Public understanding of mental illness was limited at best and was typically described in terms that provoked fear. It was also the period in which psychiatric literature actively sought to define homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder, 
a movement that became institutionalized when, in April 1952, the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance, a term generally used to describe people who show no regard for right or wrong. This image of homosexuality as an immoral threat was also conveyed to the public in 1953 via President Eisenhower's executive order banning homosexuals from working in the federal government because of perceived security risks. So for original audiences of Suddenly Last Summer, there was already an expectation of a link between homosexuality and threatening behavior. And it's that link that fuels our next scream. Here, Catherine is flooded with memories of the day Sebastian was killed. As her memory returns, so too does her horror at what transpired on that fateful day. And you, Catherine, what did you do then? I heard Sebastian scream. He screamed just once. I, I, then I, then I, For the entirety of the film, Sebastian is coded as queer. He's interested in art and is a poet. He has a naturally close relationship with his mother, and he is described multiple times as being sensitive and fastidious, all codes for queerness in the 1950s. Sebastian's story is also told exclusively through the memories of two females, and that framing demasculinizes the character in a way that emphasizes that Sebastian wasn't a quote-unquote man's man, but a man surrounded by women in which he held no sexual interest. The icy aloofness of Violet, when set against Catherine's anguished scream here, further reiterates that Sebastian was raised in privilege, and that access to power, when coupled with his homosexuality, is intended to increase the audience's understanding of Sebastian's monstrosity. Because what could be worse than a homosexual? A homosexual with the means to act with impunity. Once the floodgates open for Catherine, she not only remembers the spectacle of Sebastian's death, but also the circumstances that led to it. And then? Then? I ran. They let me run. They, they didn't even see me. Run where? Down. The waiters. Police people ran out of buildings back up to where, to where Cousin Sebastian, he, he was lying naked on the broken stone. And this you won't believe. Nobody, nobody, nobody could believe it. It looked as if, as if they had devoured him, as if they torn or cut parts of him away with their hands, or with knives or those jagged tin cans they made music with, as if they'd torn bits of him away and stuffed them into those gobbling mouths. What's especially clever about this scene is the way that it inverts the earlier moment of Catherine being groped by the asylum patients. 
Whereas we are positioned to sympathize with Catherine's plight at being attacked by people mentally ill in the earlier scene, here we are meant to read Sebastian as deserving of his death due to his own mental illness, i.e. his homosexuality. Lest we question that Sebastian is supposed to be the monster of the film, the movie provides an explicit homage to another horror classic. The documentary The Celluloid Closet, which looks at depictions of homosexuality in film, notes that the scene of Sebastian ascending up the hill while being chased by a mob echoes strongly the scene in Frankenstein of the monster being chased by torch-carrying townspeople. The fact that we never see Sebastian's face echoes the queer invisibility of the error, but it's also reinforcing the idea that homosexuals aren't actual complete people. Rather, they are simply cast as their sexual desires. From 1947 until 1961, people fired from federal jobs because of their sexual orientation exceeded those fired for presumed membership in the Communist Party. And while the erasure of overt depictions of homosexuality as anything other than monstrous or threatening in the movies certainly didn't cause this loss of legal protections for queer people, it did contribute to a culture that defined heterosexuality as normal and any other type of sexuality as abnormal. Casting homosexuality as a mental illness further dehumanized homosexuals and made it possible for people to see and treat homosexuals as less than. And so queer-coded horror films are a double-edged sword. Yes, these films provided queer audiences with some desperately desired and needed representation, but they also served as a form of cultural propaganda that centered the heterosexual nuclear family as the norm and rendered anyone outside of that sphere as threatening. And it's this association of queerness with monstrosity that still lingers in modern horror film. This wraps up our look at queer-coded horror screams. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, I recommend Cinematic Sociology, Social Life in Film by Jean Ann Sutherland and Catherine M. Felty, Pre-Code Hollywood, Sex, Immorality, and Insurrection in American Cinema by Thomas Doherty, Screened Out by Richard Barrios, and Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality and the Horror Film by Harry M. Benshoff. If you have any comments, gripes, or observations about this episode, you can find me at When the Woman Screams website, link in the description. In our next episode, we'll be looking at post-Trump horror screams and thinking through what they have to tell us about female rage and political silencing. I hope you'll scream with me.